welcome back to Tiny Voice Talks with me, Toria Bono. And today I am really excited that I have Abby Bayford with me. Now, I don't know how many of you know Abby. I met her on Twitter. I've been trying to get her to come on this podcast for ages. We'd agreed a date, a time. We were recording, then we weren't. We were and we weren't. And finally, Abby, I've got you with me. I couldn't be happier. How are you? I'm really well, thank you, Tori, and so glad to join. Um, we've, we have been trying for a while, haven't we? Um, I've managed a house move in between the last conversation we've had, but more settled now. Oh, that's. Are you still living in the farm? Yes, we've just I changed house on the farm. Oh, that's so exciting! That really is. I love the fact you live in a farm. That just makes me very happy. Do you go out and look after the pigs and the goats and the sheep? Well, yes, but you know, like fair weather runners, I'm a bit like that. Um, as in, if the fair weather farmer, fair weather farmer. So, <laughs> if the weather's nice, I'll volunteer to go and feed the sheep. <laughs> <laughs> and if it's sort of stormy, etc., no, I'm okay actually. Yeah, just send the other half out then. Oh, I love that. I really do. So, apart from being a fair weather farmer, yeah. who is Abby Bayford? That is some question. Um, well, I am 35 years old and originally from Birmingham, you will probably tell from the dulcet tones, and uh, now living in Shropshire on the farm, as we've established. Uh, I'd say a, a, a hopeless animal lover, which is just as well, really. So I've got four dogs. We've got a few hundred wow. sheep. We've got chickens who Johnny Utley is as forced me into naming one of the chickens Johnny. Um, and I want a I, chicken named Toria as well. I'd quite okay. like a Toria chicken. I've never had a Toria chicken. That'd be cool. You're on. So we've got Johnny and Toria. <laughs> <laughs> and I am a keen horse rider, but I haven't got horses yet. Yet. Well, that's really exciting. And then... Now, uh, well, and director of Institute, I should probably mention. Oh, I, yeah, I, I, I was bring, I was bringing you <laughs> on to that because I was thinking, gosh, we we are actually going down sort of sort of a farm talk program. But I thought I better bring you back to to the, to the main thing, which is yes. So tell us about your day job, Abby. Yeah. So when I'm not looking after sheep, I am uh, <laughs> director of Institute at the Academy Transformation Trust, um, which is a semi-large map of twenty-one academies and quite geographically dispersed. So we serve 10 local authority areas, which has its challenges. And we've got around 13,500 learners across our academies. Yeah, it's it's really exciting. And you've achieved so much at such a young age, you really have. To have that sort of title, which sounds very, very posh, that title. So it's director of I always wonder. Director of what? Institute. I always think to myself. Director of Institute sounds really quite posh, doesn't it? It sounds. Well, I hope it's not all the gear, no idea, actually. Because when you put it on an agenda, (laughs) I always think, who do they think is going to turn up? (laughs) Will they be disappointed? I'm sure they're not. But I mean, it is to be a director of Institute at your age is absolutely tremendous. So let's just... I mean, did you always want to to work in education? Was that a dream that you had from a young age? No. I'd really like to say 
I was born to be a teacher. Um, and I feel that way now. But no, um, I was always really passionate about English. It was the subject I most enjoyed at school. So mm. we d- we didn't have great careers advice when I was at school. So I remember being sent to reception and there was a box of index cards and you you could read them for five minutes and then someone would shove you out the way and it was someone else's turn so I'd randomly (laughs) flick through the index cards sometimes thinking what on earth am I going to do with my life um so I thought okay I'll just do some A-levels in subjects I enjoy so I did English uh media studies drama um which makes me laugh actually because I'm quite an introvert really and um, then went and did a degree in English, still with no actual idea what I was going to do. And then I was watching Casualty one day and saw a midwife and it was this really beautiful scene and she brought this child into the world. I thought, that's amazing. And um, put probably as much thought into the person who created the index cards and thought, I'll become a midwife then. Applied was successful uh and my mom kept saying Abby I I just don't think this is the career for you you don't like blood (laughs) which I didn't you know I I was like the child that would have a yeah I would have a nervous breakdown as a child if you know someone's finger was bleeding or god forbid my own finger and um but I'm the kind of person that can be quite relentless and I thought no you've told me I can't do this now so I'm going to be blooming stubborn and pursue this career in midwifery so mum brought home a birthing video still wonder where she got this from and um, hopefully it wasn't hers we didn't put it on and I refused to watch it and then dad had got the discovery channel on and I was watching the birth of a baby hedgehog and so I said turn it off turn it off it's disgusting and I think that was a bit of an epiphany moment for me and I thought you know what probably not yes midwifery was not yeah it wasn't for me so very very quickly (laughs) to get on to (laughs) um you know I decided to do a PGCE instead which is definitely more fitting and I certainly realized after my first placement I'd I'd found my calling in life thank goodness yeah definitely a lot less blood definitely um I'm just thinking of all the poor women who might have had me as a midwife I would have been more distressed than them (laughs) (laughs) so you're an NQT yeah. So how do you go from being an NQT then to a director of an institute? Again, yeah. do you know what? Sometimes I just think I stumble into these things by getting stuck in and getting involved in stuff. So mm-hmm. in my NQT year, there was no one that would teach media studies, basically. So I said, I'll do it, which is just typical Abbey. I'll, I'll give anything a go. And because there wasn't a a leader of media studies, I started writing, you know, the schemes of of work and I guess by piecemeal was creating a curriculum. And so they probably thought, okay, we kind of need someone really driving this work. So after my NQT year, I got appointed as head of media studies, which sounds again fancy but there was only me in the department so I wasn't leading anyone but you know it was sort of a recognition of the work I was doing and really enjoyed 
the curriculum side of things but actually mm-hmm. it gave me an opportunity to see children learning in contexts that don't always see in English so you know we'll be looking at the technology side of things and um, you know it was much more practical and it, it naturally this was back in the day you know when children based on things like prior attainment were encouraged to do particular subjects which is awful and I don't advocate it but that is what happened and a lot of children with special educational needs did media studies and I really got very passionate about okay how can we make our curriculum accessible without diluting its challenge? You know, how can we create equity within our curriculum? And so it inspired in me a, a real enthusiasm for inclusive practice. And so I decided I wanted to be a Senko. And again, wow. this is like me stumbling into roles just by a pure stroke of luck. The deputy Senko moved into a different role. And I applied and and was really fortunately successful. And then after a year, the Senko left. So I became Senko. Wasn't it already? But I thought, okay, I'm just going to give it a go. And absolutely loved it. Um, But was really frustrated in the role as well. So for me, it was one of the most career-changing roles, but also my greatest source of frustration because I'd been so many annual review meetings having conversations about interventions and withdrawal groups. And I thought, you know what, and not not for all children, but for some of of these children, if the quality of lessons had been a bit better and the scaffolding and the the support, we might not need this number of interventions for, for some of these children. And so I started to think about where I could have the biggest scope of influence and decided it was probably something more linked to teaching and learning and coaching Mm. so I could make sure that every child was getting the best deal in the classroom rather than withdrawing them from the classroom you know it just felt like a square pegs in round hole approach so this is kind of how I got on the whole teaching and learning road which led to me um applying for a lead practitioner position which I absolutely loved. Full circle. You you were you were in the classroom, then you went into leadership, and you were, then came out and were doing Senko. Yeah. And then you actually thought, actually, I, I need to go back in to make. Yeah. You're very solution focused. I've just written that down because actually, it appears as you've gone through your career that you've seen problems, and rather than going, oh my gosh, there's a problem, you've gone, okay, what's the solution? Yeah. I hate, I hate moaning. I really hate moaning. I just think, I think you have to make a decision whether it's within your control, because I totally appreciate not everything is, but if it's within your control and you can do something about it, just do it. And that's always been my philosophy professionally and personally. Mm -hmm. It's a good philosophy to have though. So in your solution focused way, you left the Senko position and where did you go to then? So this was big for me because I don't like change despite being solution focused I really you know change can make me quite anxious <laughs> bit of bit of a, a juxtaposition there so I 
there wasn't lead practitioner was a really new role so you know you had the ASTs didn't you but it was the era of the lead practitioner fortunately for me and so I I went on the test and and just had a little look and uh, a school probably I don't know three or four miles down the road was advertising for a lead practitioner in English and Mm -hmm. I think my head teacher at the time just thought I was absolutely bonkers because he he very much saw it as a sideways move but I've never been like a a career teacher if you like you know really chasing the next step on the leadership ladder so for me it wasn't about that it was about feeling fulfilled and thinking about where I could make the biggest difference so I went for it and fortunately um was successful and and that's how I I really got onto this this track of as I said teaching and learning and again it was just really lucky in some ways so the assistant head went on maternity leave um so I applied to do a year secondment on the SLT leading on teaching and learning and again that was excitement exciting because I'd I'd started to develop pedagogy in English that was working really well really loving and lapping up the coaching side of things so I thought well this is a chance to scale all of that up now whole school Mm. um and then the assistant head came back and she became vice principal so I was able to stay in that position um and it was sort of at the time then she was then really successful and became a head when curriculum started becoming less about timetabling and more about you know really rich curriculum conversations curriculum design and and so on so there was an opportunity to really grow my role um and so I became vice principal and and led on quality of education uh, and leadership and management and CPD Mm -hmm. uh and then was just really lucky because uh, the school I was at was part of the Academy Transformation Trust, where I'm director of Institute. And Debbie, our CEO, was doing the climatization visits. Uh, she just started, and she was trying to get to know all the academies and I guess figure out where she really liked practice and, and where we yeah. could scale that up again. And fortunately for me. Um, she really loved the people development model we'd established at Bristol Hall Academy where I was vice principal and gave me some leadership responsibility across our trust to, to grow that. Um, amazing. So tell me about that people development model because so you've gone, you've talked about the, the fact that you really wanted to impact and make a difference to the children that you were teaching, but you also wanted to impact and make a difference to the people that you're working with yeah for me because there's always a bit of a challenge isn't there like is this going to take me away from the classroom will I be happy because I knew I was happiest in the classroom so it felt like a bit of a clash there Mm -hmm. but um it was actually something Sir David Carter got me thinking about and he kind of said well are you an English teacher of 30 children or you know 900 in your school or could you be an English teacher for example who impacts on the outcomes for 13,000 learners and I thought Mm. how amazing is that because actually where I had the biggest scope of influence I think before being director of institute was when I was coaching others and really empowering them because I knew that everyone was working to their to their best 
and everyone was doing a really great job for the children and I was impacting far more children than I could have done just staying inside those classroom walls so that gave me the push then and the drive um and I'm really resolute that anything we do in our institute needs to have the sole aim to mobilize teacher agency but in, improve things at that edge between school and community. Mm-hmm. And what did that people development look like then? Well, it was a blank piece of paper in some respects, because wow. although we've got a strong people development model at our one school, we didn't have mm-hmm. a consistent model across our trust. But what I didn't yeah. want to do is just drag and drop a model from one school to another, because that disempowers people that and I think what excites people in teaching is the chance to innovate and and collaborate and grow as a professional so I didn't want a model that became a shackle that inhibited people's creativity so the first step for me was really trying to understand the local needs of our academies so that we could really cement our values about people development first, because I felt like if we could get the value statement right, that became then the framework for decision making. And it didn't mean everyone's decisions had to be the same then, or people's context could be different. So we established a people development lead in every academy, and we would spend a day together every half term, which was mm-hmm. really powerful for me, because it can be quite isolating if you're the only person in a trust uh, in that role. And it was really nice to meet like-minded people. Um, And we sort of wrote our vision. So we said, okay, what is people development? What isn't it? And we were really passionate that it needed to be equitable, that, you know, everyone has a professional obligation to improve, but they should work in an environment where they can improve as well. So there were three fundamental principles to all of the work we did thereafter. That makes complete sense. It absolutely does. So how did you manage to create a sort of universal language, whatever, across the trust? Because that must have been tricky. Yeah, that took some time. And the people development leads were instrumental then. So it wasn't called people development. It was called CPD. And I know I I can imagine like an eye roll from people when I say this, but it is more than semantics. This isn't about repackaging the same idea. For us, when we established our vision, a huge part of development is exploring people's past experiences, their beliefs about teaching, their beliefs about curriculum and so on. And there has to be a connection with those things because they're the things that anchor people in the classroom. So when we do something, we're not trying to do a bad job, even if it's not having the impact we'd hoped, but it's Mm -hmm. fundamentally anchored in what we believe great teaching, for example, looks like. So if you just go down this formalized approach of, okay, you're going to go on this training course, or this is the content, I'm going to transmit this knowledge to you. I feel like you're neglecting the aspects of people that enable them to affect change. Hmm. If that makes sense. It does. It does make sense. Um, You were very keen on not calling that calling this podcast 
development. You wanted it to be called entitlement. Mm. So I suppose that links into it, that actually there's an entitlement there. Yeah. It's it's everyone's professional right to have um, a career where they can continue to get better, where they can draw on the expertise of their colleagues Um, For me, it's totally unacceptable that anyone would feel alone in their role. So Mm -hmm. it does go back to entitlement. And I'm really passionate about all stakeholders, well, sorry, all employees, really understanding their right and their entitlement because they should be demanding of their school, of their trust, you know, how are you going to support me to keep getting better? But equally, we should be demanding as well and hold our staff able because they have a professional obligation to keep getting better as well for our children. And that must be really tricky to manage across a trust, the entitlement of all. Yeah, it is. And it it doesn't happen overnight. It's a cultural piece, ultimately. But you have to build the strategy around that. Um, but but ultimately, the strategy won't work if the culture isn't right. So it, it takes me back to, to the value statement. You've got to do a piece of work engaging people in those values and then demonstrate how the people development offer that has been created shows those values. So, um, for example... Our role performance development, we have leadership development pathways for every uh, role across our organisation because people need to know what is available to them in their role. Now, that's just one aspect, but if we'd have created that and we'd neglected some roles and hadn't put them on there, then then that goes back to that equity point, isn't it? You know, we are creating a culture where we're saying we prioritise some roles over another. So it mm. felt a little bit, well, not a little bit, it felt really vast as a piece of work. And it, it is took vast, a, though. It really it is vast. Huge. I mean, I mean, honestly, we, we created it as a bit of a tube map. And um, I spent a wild Friday night on Word moving dots and lines around. I thought, what am I doing with my life? Um, but it was important that people could clearly see mapped out what role performance development was there for them or if they did have aspirations to move into a particular role how can how are we going to help them get there and and it goes back to you know the school example I gave with the index cards I, I would love that roadmap I wanted someone to show me what I could do with my talents at school and no one was able to do that for me. And I was just lucky that I stumbled my way through my teenage years and, and, and early 20s and settled in a, a career that I absolutely love. Well, I'm not sure if it's got luck attached to it or whether it's just sheer determination because it sounds as if you you worked incredibly hard to get to where you've got to. Um, yeah. Out of interest, so being devil's advocate here, what do you do with people that are too shy to come forward, that don't think that they have the, the you know, the skills to, to move forward, to actually go further on the on YouTube map? 
what do you do? Great. Great question because I don't think we've cracked it yet, but that really bothered me. Like literally kept me awake at night because I I was always wanting to develop, well no not was, do want to continue to develop, but didn't always want to have to move into another role to do that. And we've got many really great employees who aren't chasing a particular role, but they want to keep getting better. And that was the next piece of work for us as an institute. How mm-hmm. how can we support lateral development for our colleagues so it hasn't got to feel so epic, you know, where you're applying for another position or uh, you're going on a an accredited course, for example, because like you said, people might be shy or they might not want to make that, that sort of commitment. So we started to look at um, collaboration groups. So we've set collaboration groups up across our trust we have curriculum hubs we have collaboration groups by role we have a group of all our early career teachers so we started to network people so that they could then start to use each other as a resource and continue that learning and then we we created what I call private people development or if I want to get fancy, asynchronous learning. But what it really means is where you can learn unconstrained by time and place, you know, could be online, could be reading blogs and so on. I wanted to give people a wealth of stuff so that they could continue their learning perhaps privately. Um, So we, part of our offer now is we've got like a huge library of, podcasts and blogs and webinars and so on organized by theme so people can dip into that as well that's amazing and I think that that then allows people to develop themselves at a pace that works for them I'm loving all the various different offers and you touched then on early career teachers, and I know that's something you're really, really passionate about. Do you think you've got it right? Oh, that's really hard to say. I think the proof will be in the pudding. I think that mm. when your early career teachers are no longer early career teachers and they're still with you and they're happy and they're thriving, I think that's when you can confidently say that. In terms of metrics we do have available to us, Um, So I meet with our early career teachers twice every half term to really remain connected to their experiences because it's so easy to forget what it was like in your first year of teaching and your second year of teaching. So that, that enables me to stay connected with them. And we're very responsive. So we've got an early career pathway for our teachers, um, and it, I mean, it's online at the moment, but we uh, use the early career framework and other stuff. But we created that with our NQTs and RQTs. So we kind of had a core offer of what, what was important for them to know and learn. But then we bolstered that with things that they really wanted. So, you know, there was some, you know, we really want a, a stronger pastoral input. How do we talk to parents? ever done that before and I said what gives you the greatest anxiety so it it was it was co-created and I think then you know that it's meeting the needs uh, of your colleagues if if you're constantly talking to each other and it's fluid so we had a 
our latest one a couple of days ago um, and it was going to be on, on pedagogy and building understanding. But I thought we need to do this in terms of building understanding online or through remote education. So we are very fluid in the way we do it. It, that sounds, it, it sounds great, actually, because one of my biggest bugbears, and I, I don't know if I've shared this in the podcast before, but for early career teachers, I think, yes, OK, we've provided them with this training. And then suddenly, day one in September, they're in a classroom with, you know, for, I'm primary, so 30 children that are suddenly their children, their class, and they are in charge of everything with that class. And yet the bit that they've been trained on is very, very much the teaching. Yeah. But what about the parent conversations? What about that pastoral element? What about all of those other things that make up being a teacher? Yeah. And I often, I really worry for the well-being of early career teachers because I think that you go from naught to a hundred on day one in September for them. You, they, you know, they really do. It's um, yeah, mm-hmm. quite something. So. Yes, anyone that can actually support and help that, I think, is is great, really. So you're doing a grand job. Thank you. I think, like I said, just keep talking to people. That that is what I spend most of my time doing, talking. (laughs) Well, I think that's so important, isn't it? I mean, being connected, and you, you mentioned about your groups, I think being connected, working collaboratively, knowing there are like minded souls out there really helps people to feel that they belong and then and feel empowered to move on and there has to be psychological safety because if you are going to say to colleagues is this working for you so when I first asked that question a couple of colleagues looked at me as if to say is this a trick question yeah (laughs) Yeah. what what do you want to say if we didn't know yeah and I had to really make it quite clear listen I'm not looking for a pat on the back here um what I want to know is what's working what's not so we can make it better I genuinely want to know and I think that put a few members of staff on edge and they thought oh my gosh you know but what they have to see is that doesn't mean something you know in terms of how you view them as a professional it's it's got to be celebrated so I feel like the way you um treat feedback and what you do it is so fundamental to building the kind of relational trust that is conducive to a really strong people development culture. Yeah, yeah, that makes so much sense. It really does. Now, as you know, Abby, I always finish with the same question in my podcasts, and people always panic over this question, which is, "I'm sweating." If you could have been taught by anyone alive or dead, who would have been your perfect teacher? It's really hard. Can I cheat and say two? Do you know what? I've had a couple of people cheat and say seven, so two is fine, far away. Okay, fine. So I would have liked to have been taught by my nan, firstly. So um, she's no longer around. She was full of so much wisdom and such humility I always thought it was a crying shame that she'd never become a teacher because she was such a fantastic role model and she cared so passionately about other people and I really 
look up to her. And I always think if I could be half the woman my nan was, I'd have done a good job. So her definitely. And then Brené Brown, because I'm obsessed with her. I've even got a What Would Brené Do mug. (gasps) Love that. I know. So um, she is so fierce, so courageous. And she taught me to not fear being a leader who demonstrates emotion and has emotion. It's a strength because... The leaders I saw in my early years of teaching were not those leaders. And that's not criticism of them. But I did not see the human side to them. And I thought they were perfect and flawless. And they never made a mistake. And I convinced myself for probably, oh, I don't know, the first five or six years of my career, that I could never be a senior leader because I could never behave in that way. I mean, if my voice doesn't say, my face certainly says what I'm thinking. So I always thought, I can't be that that sort of, that uh, robotic's probably a really awful word to use, but it felt robotic, it felt detached. And so I, I love Brené because she celebrates courage, she celebrates vulnerability, daring leadership. Um, so she's a, a great role model for me. Two absolutely fantastic teachers chosen there. Really are, Abby. You have been an absolute delight to talk to. If anyone wants to get in contact with you, what's the best way via Twitter? Yeah. Which is at ATT underscore Institute. That's right, yeah. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me about entitlement. You know, I really, everything that you've said has resonated and I found myself nodding through our conversation. I really have. Um, Yeah, so thank you so much and keep doing all the great work you're doing, Abby. Thank you. Thanks, Tori. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me and trusting me on your podcast. You are so, so welcome. (laughs) I've absolutely loved it.